<laughs> Thanks, Scott. When they showed the pastor preaching from his iPad, Scott looked at me. I don't have the chucks on, though, although it would be more comfortable. My, I'm very blessed to have my wife uh, and both sons with me, although one of them is in uh, with the kids. But our youngest son, who's three months old, is here as well. So uh, part of me sometimes wants to just preach holding uh, my boys or showing just a picture of them on the slides um, because, you know, that way people will like me more. Um, but, uh, uh, but today, we're going to get a little fired up today, so I don't, you know, want to, you know, have the baby and, and that at the same time. So I'm grateful for Adrian and, and Will being here with us today. Will you join me in prayer? Gracious God, thank you very much for this day. Thank you for this time that we can gather together, and thank you for your spirit, which fills our hearts and which fills this place. God, I pray that that spirit would not just leave us here, but us out, that it would light a fire that would explode into the world that you might make a difference with your people through us. God, we thank you for this time. Amen. I also, before I get started, want to say thank you. I want to say thank you that those school supplies I believe that you're raising are coming to Restore Hope so that we can help kids in need. So far, we've helped almost 1,500 kids in need. Actually, over 1,500 kids in need in just one week of opening our doors to help the folks in Tulsa. And so thank you for those school supplies in advance. We'll need them this week. We're already ahead of our goal as far as helping uh, the families that are coming to us. We're expecting 2,500, and we've already had 1,500 come in in the first week. So uh, next week should be crazy once again. And so uh, thank you for those supplies. I also want to say thank you for lending us uh, three wonderful, amazing board members I think that's the most of any church in town. Uh, we have three from Abiding Harvest. The Dillinghams, Mary Lou, and John. Yeah, it's, that's good. <laughs> Mary Lou and John Dillingham and Karen Reese as well. Uh, for They've been board members for many years, and it is a, a joy to have them. And Karen was, was at Restore Hope last week putting together those boxes of school supplies and then uh, helping us to sign people up for them. If you would like to help us sign people up, uh, just let Karen or myself know, and we would love to help you, especially this week um, in the mornings. We need your help, so please uh, consider coming by. I, uh, I love trivia. Any trivia fans? Anybody? I love it. Ever since I was a kid, I've loved it. I was kind of like that kid in Jerry Maguire. Uh, you know the, the kid, the human head weighs eight pounds. Bees and dogs can smell fear. You know that kid? I, I, that, that was me, I think, when I was a kid. I, I wanted to memorize facts that other people didn't know or really didn't need to know, didn't care to know. And so I, rem- I memorized things like the fact that, that, that South Africa has three capitals. Did you know that? It has three capital cities, one for each branch of government. Here's a little trivia for you today. How about that George Lazenby? Anybody know who George Lazenby is? He's the, unfor- he's the forgotten Bond. He was the second Bond after Sean Connery. How do you follow that guy? Um, George Lazenby did for one movie, and then he was out. Roger Moore replaced him. And then there's this beautiful flower. It was Oklahoma's state flower for many years, except it's not a flower. It's a fungus <laughs> called mistletoe. Thankfully, they figured out that it's a f- fungus and not a flower. They've changed it. It's a rose now. But uh, mistletoe was the state flower for a long time. That's the kind of stuff that fills my brain. 
And so I've always loved Trivial Pursuit. I've loved that game. Uh, I, I, I call it kind of a cocktail party kind of knowledge. Not many people invite a pastor to a cocktail party, I should say that. Um, but, but it's that kind of knowledge that you use at a cocktail party. To, you know, to, it's a little bit of knowledge about a lot of things, but it's never too deep. It's trivial, right? But I've, I've loved that since I was a kid. That's why in my home, some homes don't have any copies of Trivial Pursuit. Those homes are sad for me. Uh, we have three copies of Trivial Pursuit at my house. We have three editions. We have the Millennium Edition in a beautiful tin can. We have the DVD pop culture and the newest one, Digital Choice, where you can download new questions. Isn't that exciting? I am a huge nerd. That, that doesn't even count the sports trivia games that I have, the movie trivia games that I have. Isn't my wife lucky? She is... She is so blessed. I love, love, love trivia. It is one of my favorite things. But the church should not be trivial. The church should not be shallow. The church should not just cover the surface and never get very deep. There was a recent blog post that that just kind of went viral. It went all over the web, and people are responding to it all over the place by Rachel Held Evans. She's a Christian. She is a young Christian, and she wrote an article called Why Millennials Are Leaving the Church. Millennials are the generation after me. Uh, I'm Gen X. The the generation after me are are the millennials, and the next generation's coming up. And this post was supposedly saying why millennials are leaving the church. Now, whether you agree or not, she, she brought out a lot of facts. She actually was backed by the facts and by surveys of people who had, had looked into what millennials are thinking and why the, that that generation is coming to church at a rate far less than other generations, even the Gen Xers who were, you know, kind of disaffected a long time ago. And, and they fa- she found that, that they pe- people who are millennials seem to think that the church is, is a few things. They think it's too political that it's too connected to political parties. They, they think that it is uh, too uh, exclusive, that, that they don't really feel welcome uh, in, in going to church, and they feel that it's too shallow, that they have to leave their brains at home, that they have to, to, to check their conscience at the door, and, and that all we're doing is really just kind of singing stuff and, and, and talking about stuff. And Rachel Held Evans said that, that she tells this to, to conferences, and she goes to pastors and says, this is what the millennials are saying about the church. And, and she inevitably, during question and answer time, will get a pastor to say, so are you telling us that we need a hipper pastor, that we need somebody to preach for him an iPad and wear chucks and, and, and have coffee and, and do all of those things? And she said it makes her want to hit her head against the podium and just beat her head against the wall. Because it's just, I mean, what they're saying is that, does it help just to be cooler? No. It's just more shallow. I mean, it's just a shallow response to this shallow critique. And at the end of this blog post, she says a line that is is biting, and it's it's painful to read, um, but I'm going to read it for you. We're not leaving the church, we being millennials, we're not leaving the church because we don't find the cool factor there. We're leaving the church because we don't find Jesus there. I don't know about you, but that hurts my heart. That we would allow an entire generation to come to church and not find Jesus there. And yet that's what at least this one commentator says about why millennials are coming to church at a far less rate, a far fewer rate than, uh, than other generations. 
It reminds me of, a, of a, an amazing parable that I heard many years ago from a, a South African professor of mine, uh, but I think it, it is true today. And we have a YouTube clip, actually, uh, to, to talk about it, I think. On a dangerous seacoast where shipwrecks often occur, there was once a crude little life-saving station. The building was no more than a hut, and there was only one boat. But the few devoted members kept a constant watch over the sea. With little to no thought for themselves, they went out day and night, tirelessly searching for the lost. Some of those who were saved and various others in the surrounding areas wanted to become associated with the station and give their time and money and effort to support the work. New boats were brought in and new crews were trained. And the little life-saving station grew. Some of these new members of the life-saving station were unhappy that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt that a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those who were saved from the sea. They replaced the emergency cots with beds and put better furniture in the enlarged building. Now the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its members, and they began to use it sort of as a club. Fewer members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions, so they hired lifeboat crews to do this work. The life-saving motif still prevailed in this club's decor, and there was a memorial lifeboat in the room where the club initiations were held. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and hired crews brought in boatloads of cold, wet, half-drowned people. They were dirty and sick, and some of them were foreigners. The beautiful new club was in chaos immediately. The property committee hired someone to rig up a shower outside the club, where victims of the shipwreck could be cleaned up before coming inside. The outsiders made the life-saving station extremely dirty. At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the club's life-saving activities because they felt that they were unpleasant and a hindrance to the normal social life of the club. But a small number of members insisted upon life-saving as their primary mission and pointed out that they were still called a life-saving station. After all, the dissenting group's members were voted down and told that if they wanted to save lives, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast. So they did. As the years went by, however, the new station experienced the same changes that had occurred in the old station. It evolved into a club, and yet another life-saving station was found. History continued to repeat itself, and if you visit that eastern seacoast today, you will find a number of exclusive clubs along that shore. Shipwrecks are still frequent in those waters. But most of the passengers drown. Ouch. Every time I tell that story, I have people who come to me and say, I, I see that in, in our church, the larger church today. I see the, that kind of mentality of, 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 a, of a church that, that came together for a, a good purpose, and, and it, it turns into to more of a club. It turns into to less of what it used to be. And, and I think there are people who tell me, you know, that 
that's telling of the church today. But the sad reality of that video, that, that story, is that that parable was written 60 years ago. And it was as true 60 years ago as it is today. And it was as true 60 years before that, and 60 years before that, and 600 years before that. A thousand years before that. It was, it was in fact something that God worried about. Even as the people of Israel were wandering in the desert, God was worried about this very thing, about, about the worship of, of his people, about his people turning away from the covenant, turning away from what they knew, and, and turning into to something that he didn't recognize. The, this book that I'm holding here, it's called Manna and Mercy. It, it's not a book that you're going to find in a lot of places. I can tell you where to find it. It's a fantastic book uh, that, that, that talks about about God's gift of manna to the world, about the, the, the rules that God gave to that, that, that there was enough for everybody, that, that anybody could have it and that you shouldn't hoard it, and that we should share. And, and so God was worried about his people following those rules in the wilderness, and so he, he gave us the law, and, and the law does a beautiful job of holding uh, what Erlander calls these, these two things together, righteousness and mercy, holding together this honoring worship of God, this, this, this thing that, that makes God, uh, that recognizes who God is, that God is the source of our gifts, that God is the source of the manna, and at the same time, remembering mercy to, to share with those who are the most vulnerable, those who are the most in need. And, and, and Erlander in his book says that, that these things, these two things held together, these righteousness and mercy represents the gift of worship. And, and, and God talks about that in, in Deuteronomy 14 and 15. Deuteronomy 14 does this amazing job of, of, of talking about how we can honor God with, with everything that we have. And, and in fact, it talks about offerings and tithes. And it says what, how we should tithe and, and how we should give of our crops. Uh, you know, at that time, it was a pretty agrarian society. And, and it was saying that we should tithe of all the yield of our seed. And, and talks about tithing of, of, of the spices of sheep and, and oxen and, and, and other things. And it goes into great detail about how they should honor God uh, in a righteous way. That's Deuteronomy 14. Deuteronomy 15, the very next chapter, talks about how we should, we should take care of the strangers among us. How If there's any needy in the land, it says, that we should take care of them. The, if there was anyone among you in need, a member of your community in any of your towns within the land that the Lord our God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your needy neighbor. You should rather open your hand, willingly lending enough to meet the need, whatever it may be. Right? It's this beautiful connection of righteousness in 14 and mercy in 15. This beautiful connection of what this dream of what God had in mind for worship. That our, our worship should be holding these things in, 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 tandem, in, in tandem, in in tension together, in balance. That we should honor God with our, our words and our songs and, and that we should honor God and, and give God and God's people mercy with the things that we have, that we would share God's manna. It was a beautiful dream for worship, and unfortunately, it was a dream. Because the people of God forgot that dream. The people of God forgot the words of the law. They forgot the words of Deuteronomy. And that's where we get this passage that I'm kind of focusing on today in, in Isaiah. And, and I'll tell you, um, this translation is the message translation 
It's Eugene Peterson's version. It's, a, it's a, actually a fantastic translation, uh, but it puts the Bible into modern words. Uh, and, and I just want you to hear it today. And it's a criticism of, of what Isaiah sees. Listen to my message, you Sodom-schooled leaders, Isaiah writes. Receive God's revelation, you Gomorrah-schooled people. From the very beginning, he's comparing them to the two cities that God destroyed because of lack of righteousness. God says, why this frenzy of sacrifices? Don't you think I've had my fill of burnt sacrifices, rams and plump grain-fed calves? Don't you think I've had my fill of blood from bulls, lambs, and goats? When you come before me, whoever gave you the idea of acting like this? Running here and there, doing this and that, all this sheer commotion in the place provided for worship. Quit your worship charades, Isaiah says. I can't stand your trivial religious games. Monthly conferences, weekly Sabbaths, special meetings, 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 meetings. I can't stand one more. Can I get an amen? Meetings for this, meetings for that. I hate them. You've worn me out. I'm sick of your religion, 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 while you go right on sinning. And this is perhaps the most painful. When you put on your next prayer performance, I'll be looking the other way, God says. No matter how long or loud or often you pray, I'll not be listening. And do you know why? Because you've been tearing people to pieces and your hands are bloody. Go home and wash up. Clean up your act. Sweep your lives clean of your evil doings. Say, so I don't have to look at them any longer. Say no to wrong. Learn to do good. Work for justice. Help the down and out. Stand up for the homeless. Go to bat for the defenseless. Come, sit down. Let's argue this out. This is God's message. If your sins are blood red, they'll be snow white. If they're red like crimson, they'll be like wool. If you'll willingly obey, you'll feast like kings. But if you're willful and stubborn, you'll die like dogs. That's right. God says so. This is the word of God to Isaiah and to, his, to God's people. I mean, Isaiah, God through Isaiah is calling the people just 300 years after David, 300 years after the greatest king in Israel's history. God's people had, had disintegrated so much that, that eight of the 10 tribes, or 10 of the, I'm sorry, 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel were gone. They had just been destroyed by the Assyrians. There were only two tribes remaining, and those two tribes, uh, God says through Isaiah, are doing it wrong. As Erlander has in, in the comment, in the, the, the picture of, in the previous slide, they're going to worship and they're saying, praise Yahweh, and, and they're having a good time and they're raising hands, and, and God says, your religious rituals make me sick. There's the guy on the end that says, this liturgy's boring. Yeah, I can't wait till it's over so I can get back to cheating the poor. And, and the worst of it all is that God says to that, that, that these people are gathering for worship, but because their lives are empty, because their worship is trivial, God says to them, when I look at you, I'm going to turn away. I'm not going to listen to your, your next prayer performance. Unless you clean up your act. Unless you start doing good. Unless you work for justice. Unless you take care of those who are in need. Unless you reach out to, to the poor and defenseless. I'm out. I don't know about you, but that scares me. 
I don't want, to, I don't want God to stop listening to my prayers. I don't want God to, to stop listening to us as a church. And yet that, it's, it's in the Bible, it's in Scripture. That's what God says to, to God's own people in Isaiah 1. And, and I would love to tell you that the people of God listened at, at, to Isaiah, that they, that they heard Isaiah's words and they said, we're sorry, we're going to do better, we're going to change our lives. They didn't. In, in Isaiah 58, he has to go back to them and, and another people another time and say, you're, you're doing the fast and you're doing the festivals and you're coming to worship, but, but that's not the fast that I choose. Isaiah says, is this not the fast I choose? to loose the bonds of injustice, to undo the thongs of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house? What, what God is saying there through Isaiah is, this is the kind of worship that I want, that you, would, that you would share bread with the hungry, that you would take care of the homeless. This is the worship uh, that, that I am calling you to. This is the worship that I want. But again, the, the people of God failed to listen. They failed to hear the word of God. And, and, and Amos and the other prophets later uh, still have to come back and say the same thing. Amos 5 says, I hate, I despise your festivals, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, they're following the law, they're following the righteousness part. I will not accept them. And the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals, I will not look upon them. Doesn't this sound like Isaiah 1? Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Again, God has to say to God's people, Please, your, your, your songs are great. They're really nice, but you're not listening. You're not hearing the call of the needy. You're not following my, my, my words in Deuteronomy 15 to share of, of, of your gifts, to share of the manna. Please, just let justice roll down like waters. Let, let justice be the thing of your life. Let justice roll into the world that you might make a difference in the world. And again, God's people failed to listen. You'd think that the Pharisees, with all of their focus on the law, with, with knowing exactly what all 613 commandments had to say to them and to their lives, you'd think that the Pharisees of all people would have got this. That they would have known these scriptures and they would have followed them in, in amongst their other 613 commandments. After all, it's right there in the Torah. It's right there in the first five books of the Bible, let alone the, the words of the prophets. But they didn't. I mean, Matthew 23, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. I love it. It, it, It's Jesus lighting into the Pharisees. It's Jesus calling them all sorts of names, using very colorful language, saying, you whitewashed tombs, you brood of vipers. And I I think the most telling is in in Matthew 23, 23, when, when Jesus says this to the Pharisees. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you tithe mint, dill, and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. It is these you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. <laughs> I mean, the Pharisees were tithing their spice rack. 
They, they, were, they were living into the law of, of, of Deuteronomy 14. They were taking that little jar of cumin and, and taking out 10% and taking it to the church. And the little jar of mint and dill and, and taking out 10% and taking that to the church. They were meticulous with like little teaspoon measurements of, of, their, of their spices. But they had forgotten about Deuteronomy 15, the very next chapter that calls them to live with justice and mercy. And so Jesus feels the need to remind them that, that they will be judged on whether or not they, they fulfill this, this acts, these acts of justice, these acts of mercy. In Matthew 25, just two chapters later, he, he says, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was naked and you, you clothed me. I was sick and in prison and you visited me. A stranger and you welcomed me. Whatever you did to the least of these members of my family, you did it to me. And vice versa, he says to the goats on the other side, whatever you didn't do, you didn't do to me. And to the one, he promises the kingdom of God, and to the other, he promises a lake of eternal fire. And so you think, well, maybe at least those people who heard those words, those people who were there uh, hearing uh, Jesus light into the Pharisees, the people who were there who, who heard Jesus talk about the sheep and the goats, maybe they listened. Maybe they heard these words and paid attention. Maybe they finally broke this chain of history that was, that was trivial and, and not helping those in need. And, and you'd be right for a while, for a while, the early church did a great job of going to those in need, of, of helping those who were hungry. They went into the inner cities, into the places where nobody else would go, and they helped those in need. But somehow, somewhere in between Jesus' words and, and, and later books of the New Testament, they had forgotten again. And so James, perhaps the brother of Jesus, has to write in James 1, be doers of the word and not hearers only. You know, it's not enough to just come to church and worship. It's not enough to just hear a good sermon. It, it, it Be doers of the word, he says. For if any think that they're religious and do not bridle their tongues but deceive their hearts, their religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to care for the orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Have we heard that before? Yes, it's the message of the entire Bible, right? I mean, James is almost at the end. Deuteronomy is almost at the beginning. Everywhere in between, God is saying to God's people, please, please, I love the worship. It's great, but please do something about those who are hungry. Please do something about those who are, 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 are hurting the widows and the orphans, the strangers in the midst. I mean, if you read the Old Testament, it's hard to avoid this call to justice. In fact, somebody said that if you cut out the passages of the Bible that talk about the poor, the book literally won't hold itself up. The, the Bible won't hold together if you cut out the parts about the poor. And, and friends, that's what I think people are seeing when they look at the church. They're looking at us and they're saying, your Bible doesn't hold up. That's, that's what this problem of the millennials not coming to us is, is that they, they look at us and they say, that's great, you're preaching from the Bible, but your Bible is full of holes. There's a hole in your gospel. 
And so this, this constant call, the, the call that was there in the beginning is the same call that's there in the middle. It's the same call that's there at the end. It's, it's this beautiful message from, from Micah 6.8, which is smack dab in the middle. What does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. I, I think this, this call of the gospel, this, this call is to not just... Let this be about us. I mean, those are some strong words. Do, love, walk. They're action verbs. They're, they're not passive verbs. They're, they're things that we have to do. They're, they're 24-7 kind of language. It's, it's this is who you need to be, not this is what you need to, to, to do on Sunday morning for an hour, an hour and a half. It doesn't say have good music and, and hear a good sermon and have refreshments afterward. Those are really good things. But if that's what it's all about, if we don't connect those things to the rest of our lives, then it's trivial. It's shallow. And it's only about us. It's selfish. After all, that, that's what God was trying to warn us against in Deuteronomy 15, right? He said, don't be hard-hearted or tight-fisted. I want you to, to put up a fist now. Actually, I want you to, to, to do that. And, and, and now I want you to open it up and look, look into your hands. I want you to imagine yourself in the palm of your hand, the core of your being, the core of who you are, right there. And, and, and I want you to, to, to think... If, you're, if, you're, if that's the core of your being and your fingers are where your energies are, what happens when you start thinking about where I want to go for lunch after church and the way I want the worship band to sound and the sermons that I want the pastor to preach and the dreams that I have for myself and the plans that I have? You're focused on yourself. What, what have you created? A fist. What's a fist good for? It's good for hurting people. It's not good for much of anything. It's good for holding on to stuff and not letting anybody else have it, right? Like this dirt in this guy's hand. He's holding on to that dirt. But what it's not good for is sharing. What it's not good for is giving and receiving the blessings of God. So so Deuteronomy reminds us, don't be tight-fisted, but open your hands, Deuteronomy 15 says. Open your hands, open your lives to the people that are around you. Open your lives to to those in need. Open yourself. Come out of just focusing on you and what you want and and creating a little exclusive club and and go out into the world. St. Augustine and and Luther, writing a thousand years apart, said that the heart of sin is being curvatus in se. Say that with me. Curvatus in se. You've done Latin this morning. Well done. Curvatus in se means to be curved in on yourself. That's the heart of sin, says Augustine and Luther. And what's the heart of the gospel? Opening yourself up. Like our Savior, the Son of God, opened Himself up for us and for our salvation. Open yourself up and consider the needs of others before you consider the needs of your own. That's Philippians 2.4. Open yourselves up and have the same mind that is Christ, who humbled himself and gave himself up for the cross, for us, and for our salvation. Open yourselves up. 
Open up your hands, open up your lives, open up the doors of the church. We recently got a new pope, not the Methodist church, but the the Catholic church got a new pope. I guess it would be a mope if it was a Methodist, but... um, the new pope is, is impressing me. From day one, when he chose the name Francis, I knew he was going to be different. Francis is the, the great lover of those who are in need. Uh, you know, he's always pictured with birds and stuff all over him, but the birds were a minor thing for Francis. It was the, the people who were poor that he was worried about. And so I knew when this pope took the name Francis that he was going to be something special, and he has been. He's done cool things like not stay at the papal apartments, not have the pope mobile, and, and he wears simple clothes. And but most importantly, he, he's called the church out. He's called the church out into God's mission, and, and he says things like this. I want the church to go out into the streets. I want us to resist everything worldly, everything static, everything comfortable, everything to do with clericalism, that kind of inward focused about the church. Everything that might make us closed in on ourselves. Do you think he's read Augustine? Probably. The parishes, the schools, the institutions are made for going out. If they don't, they become an NGO, a non-governmental organization. And the church cannot be an NGO. It cannot be an an exclusive club. It cannot be a a great life-saving station that's forgotten about life-saving and has a life-saving motif. The church cannot be an NGO. The church should go out because we are not called to be closed in on ourselves. We're we're made, we are created, we are given by God. The Holy Spirit has come into our lives and exploded into the world to go out. We are made for going out. But the Pope is not dumb. Hopefully that's an understatement. The Pope is not dumb and he realizes that when the church goes out, it's risky. That when we go out as individuals, it's risky, that it's dangerous, that sometimes we have to leave our comfort behind and, and go beyond ourselves, go beyond our comfort zone to help those in need. And, and so he followed that quote with this. He said, it is true that going out onto the street implies the risk of accidents happening as they could to any ordinary man or woman. But if the church stays wrapped up in itself, it will age. Sounds like a lot of churches, not this one, but a lot of other churches that I visit. And if I had to choose between a wounded church that goes out into the streets and a sick and withdrawn church, I would definitely choose the first one. And wouldn't we all? Wouldn't we want to choose that church? Wouldn't we want to go to that church that though it's dangerous, though they might be wounded, if they're going out and doing what what God has called them to do, if they're living this life that God has called us to live, if we're going out and actually doing what we say we believe, that's the kind of church I want to be a part of. I'm guessing that's the kind of church you want to be a part of. And my guess is that's the kind of church that the people out there in the world that don't hear my voice today, that aren't in a church somewhere, that's the kind of church that they want to be a part of. It's no surprise that that first quote that the Pope gave was to a a group of youth, Argentinian youth, people from his home, home country and young people from his home country. Because I think the Pope knows the, the same thing that Rachel Held Evan knows, the same thing that those of us who are pastors and, and following this stuff knows, that, that the youth are watching us. The youth are watching to see if we really live this out, if we really believe this stuff that we, that we preach, if we really are practicing what we preach. 
They're watching us because if we're not being authentic, if we're not being real, they're going to go to Target. They're going to go somewhere else. They're going to go to brunch on Sunday morning. They're not going to come to church. And they're doing that in droves, choosing something else because they're going to church and they're not seeing us practice what we preach. Friends, let's, let's, let's move beyond the trivial. Let's move beyond the, the, the just doing stuff for our own sake, the, the stuff that is just meant for us, the, the meetings, 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 the religion part of, of our faith. I mean, this isn't just one of those 613 commandments. This is at the core of what we believe. This isn't just tithing our spice rack. It's just not that we should, we should check off a list. Have we helped the poor this week? Yes. This is who we are called to be. So let's do it. Let's do it. Let's, let's, let's open up the, our hands. Let's open up our lives. Let's open up the doors. And let's actually live this stuff. Let's actually follow what, what God has called us to do. Let's go out and help those in need. And, and friends, I'm, not, I'm, I'm including myself in this. I don't have an out just because I'm the executive director at Restore Hope. I mean, we helped 6,000 families with 203,000 pounds of food. We kept 440 families from being homeless. We've already helped 1,500 kids and more have school supplies this week. But you know what? That is not an excuse for me to not be out on the front lines myself helping those in need. I need to be there, and I need you to join me. I mean, Restore Hope offers a great way to connect, a great means to, to go out and help those who are in need, and other agencies do that as well. But it's up to us to connect. It's up to us to, to get off of our feet, to get off of our seat, and to go. And, and to, to open the doors and find what is happening in our neighborhood. What are, what are the needs that are going on in, the, in the, the group that are around me? Where are people hurting around me, and how can I find them? How can I go to them and open up my life and say, what can I do? How can I help? Friends, that's the call of the church. That's the call of the gospel. That's the call of all of Scripture. It's the call of Christ. And it's our call. So let's answer it today. That's my prayer for you and for me. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Will you join me in prayer? God, you have not been shy about this call. You have not hidden this under a rock. You have not been secret. Uh, this is not some password that, that only a few people know. You have shouted this from the mountaintops. You have put it through all of Scripture for a reason because it is crucial for you. God, let it be crucial for us. God, if there are those here that, that your spirit is touching today, that, that, that you are calling them specifically today to go out, I pray that they would answer that call. I pray that we would all open up our lives, open up our hearts and answer that call. If there are some of you, if there are some here today who don't know you, who don't know this, this Jesus that went out to the poor, that went out to those in need and touched their lives and brought healing, God, I pray that they would know you today and that they would, when seeing you, they would say, yes, Lord, I want to follow you today. God, if, if there are people in this room today 
God, touch their hearts with your spirit and, and call them out of their comfort zone so that they would tell others that they have chosen to follow you this day. God, help us to respond to your call, to be the church that you have called us to be, to be the church that goes out and to change the world, to be disciples that make a transformational difference in the lives of our communities. God, thank you for this, t- this day. Thank you for this promise of your Holy Spirit. Bless us as we go. In Jesus' name, amen.